Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for today's interview with Jihui Fang, the Irving and Rose Fine Endowed Professor of Education in the School of Teaching and Learning at the University of Florida. His book, Demystifying Academic Writing, Genres, Moves, Skills, and Strategies, was published by Routledge in 2021. This is a unique book among all the books that have been published on academic writing. It is unique because it incorporates into the analysis the life-changing insights from systemic functional linguistics, a branch of the field that, to put it slightly dramatically, though not so much so that this way of putting it is inaccurate, The analysis of systemic functional linguistics reveals so much of language that this is not about language, really. It is about meaning. This is semiotics, as semiotics are applicable to academic writing. So we've got a unique book here, unique for its theoretical framework. And that's not all. Demystifying academic writing is also unique because it was written by Jihui Fang. Jihui engages the reader in a process of demystification, and he succeeds in this because he has himself passed through the same process. Here is Jihui Fang in his own words about, well, about himself. As someone born and raised in China for the first 20 years of my life, I have not always felt at ease when writing for academic purposes in English. It was a struggle in the sense that Every time I started the composing process, I felt the need to assume, albeit uncomfortably at first, a new identity, one that is diametrically opposed to my authentic self. My Chinese upbringing has positioned me to see writing as a piece of artwork for public appreciation, and as such, it is expected to strictly observe discursive etiquettes, for example, adhering to grammatical and rhetorical conventions, political correctness, for example, sending positive messages about the family, the society, the authority, and cultural virtues, for example, demonstrating humility, self-control, and politeness. It has also instilled in me a Chinese way of thinking and writing, one that requires me to follow the logic of circular or spiral thought processes. Like my peers in China, I was taught that an index of sound scholarship is the extent to which one can recite, manipulate, and quote incisive, artful lines from classic work or the work of influential modern scholars. I was often reminded to reference renowned scholars, even when ideas are sometimes my own, in order to make my language look elegant and my arguments look credible. I was convinced that my words will never be as important as those of established scholars. I was cautioned not to put forth my arguments in a straightforward or blunt fashion. For example, never say things like, my point is, or I argue that. But that I should labor to build up a linguistic context where the reader can infer 
rather than be explicitly told what my thoughts and arguments are. I had a tendency to place the responsibility for clarity and understanding on the reader rather than on my writerly self. In essence, my Chinese upbringing has taught me that my voice does not really matter in scholarly writing, that it is the words of authority figures that matter, and that I should let the words speak for themselves without showing emotions and subjectivities. That is Ji Hui Fang from the book, Demystifying Academic Writing. This is Ji Hui Fang on scholarly communication. Hi, Ji Hui. Welcome. Hello, Dan. Thank you for the invitation. I was wondering if um, I've just given an extensive quote from much uh, later in the book where you give us a very frank picture of yourself. And I was wondering if, in your own words now, of course, you could continue the message of the book where you go on to talk about your experience of writing English for academic purposes, the even more subtle differences that uh, appeared as you went from this characterization of yourself as, uh, I'm going to simplify things, thinking in a Chinese way, to then, as you now have become a professional, thinking about things in an English way, if you like. Yes, um, that's very true. Um, You know, coming from a different culture, different language, and I... I'm always fascinated by um, by English, which is my you could probably say second or third language. Um, you know the way as I uh, I guess I, I said in chapter eleven, uh, in the way that we were brought up to write. You know, writing is more of a display to is a more of a um, like a public art, and so you try to make it elegant, try to make it um, look really good. And, and and the best way to do that is to uh, maneuver the language resources you have. And again, the Chinese and English being two different languages, they have different grammatical resources, and they do things differently. And so one of the things that I, you know, as I learned to develop my uh, academic writing in English, that is something that I'm always very aware of in terms of what kinds of linguistic or grammatical resources that I use to communicate my meaning and my intention. And I found that, you know, English is a very different language than Chinese. And, you know, uh, and there's a need to attend to, you know, how language is used uh, in shaping our meaning, in, you know, infusing our perspective, in sharpening our focus, in developing fluency and flow. Uh, and, and that's what I focus on in this particular book. You know, how could we use language to, to do all of those things? And, you know, in addition to engage the reader and to, um, and to truly communicate what we want to communicate. And so, uh, so my emphasis is on, you know, understanding the uh, grammar as a set of choices rather than a set of rules to follow. So when we see grammar as a set of uh, choices, then it empowers us to make the type of meaning we want and to help us communicate our meaning in a clear and focus away, and so that's um, so you know uh, coming from a, a, a different language, and I'm you know it's it's being aware of uh, how we use language to make meaning, and so that is probably the focus of my book. Yes, it is, and 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 throughout, and in so many interesting ways, which I um, do certainly want to explore much of what you've just said and and unpack as much as we can. I'd I'd like to stick a little bit more with this this um, quotation that you give us uh, towards the end about yourself and about cultural differences, because you paint such a a wonderfully vivid picture of what it is, as I said before, thinking in a Chinese way, thinking in an English way. My listeners will know that I'm based in Germany. I've spent half my life here, so. I'm quite familiar with thinking in a German way. And this is this is an interesting point for me because they're in science, for example, in the STEM fields, the the people who are not using English, who are using English as as an L2 or are multilingual users are in the vast majority now. And this this is now just a fact of the way that science is done. And that means that we right now will be speaking, and your book certainly does speak to 
the majority of scholars, right? So much of, of, of science and other fields needs to be done in English or is being done in English. That's, that's perhaps another question. But if I just think of what I learn about the Chinese mindset and what if I reflect briefly on the German mindset, which people would very often think, well, yeah, Ger- Germany, it's European, must be the same, right? <laughs> or, or, or close enough. And I've had Germans tell that to me as well. Um, and, and it's always surprised me because I noticed right away before I had even done any sort of work on academic um, disciplines and academic writing when I first arrived here as a student, I noticed that things are done here very differently. <laughs> and it's not just the language. Um, just a brief example, you you provide such wonderful examples in uh, on the Chinese, and I can say for the German end, it is um, the tendency to, let's say, you talk about a puppet art, for instance. I would, I would, if I caught it in one word, I would say the comprehensive view. A German paper on any topic is very likely to try to go back to the beginning. And that is not necessarily picking up, uh, this is your metaphor and a common metaphor in, in academic disciplines, picking up the conversation where it needs to be picked up. It's almost like a automatic response in many uh, German students to look for the original, look <laughs> for, the, for the beginning point. And, and this can be too far back. This can be irrelevant for the English mindset. Yes. And, and as you pointed out, academic writing is always in, right in response to some other people's ideas. And so it's very important to situate what you say in a particular context. And so so in that sense, it's like a conversation. Another point that I want to emphasize is there's not just one type of academic writing. It's a variety. And with you know, uh, scholars in different disciplines coming from you know, all over the world, really, and many of them are... Uh, do not have English as a first language. So academic English has really become more of a uh, melting pot of, you know, of, of, of different cultures and languages. You could see traces of those in different scholars' writing. You know, it's like in my writing, I'm sure uh, people could uh, sense a sort of Chineseness in my writing, and and sometimes it's probably hard to pinpoint, but but people who have been exposed to both cultures will probably be, probably be um be able to uh, to pick that up. You know, like in my writing, very rarely do I begin with a story, like a conversation or story or vignette, and that probably has something to do with the way that I. I was educated, uh, or, you know, back in China, you know, uh, academic writing is not to tell stories. It's to project your scholarly knowledge and to make it an elegant piece of art. And so, uh, you know, but, you know, uh, having done qualitative research, having, you know, been engaged in academic writing for for over two decades, I come to realize that academic writing is more than just you know, projecting a piece of art. It's also engaging in conversation with your readers and to to make them interested in what you want to say. And in in order to do that, to present a focused, clear uh, piece of writing that you know that makes it easier for for readers to follow and um so engagement i guess probably is a key and and how do you engage the reader you through your language choices through making your writing clear and 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 flowing so those are i think are two key points in in academic writing yeah, and the uh, and the sort of environment that you're describing there as a as a melting pot, I I find that very uh, very interesting. This this idea that there are varieties of academic English that we're not dealing here, and you're not referring to the genres that we, which you list uh, in your book and give uh, very helpful tips on. Um, I'm thinking of things like the reading response or the book review and so on. I mean, when you say varieties of academic English, you're if I might make the comparison, it's almost as if it is if you were talking about dialects of a standard language. If if that's not off, that's true. And and there are many different varieties. You know, not just in terms of the different genres of academic writing, but but different ways people approach academic writing. And you know, but then despite all these varieties, there are certain things that 
make academic writing academic writing. So when people read it, people know this is a piece of academic writing as opposed to more everyday type of writing. And, and I kind of focus on that in chapter two of my book. What are some uh, common features of academic writing? You know, and so, um, so, so that's why when we see a piece of writing, we know it's academic. Sometimes people cannot pinpoint it, but we all know it is academic writing. So there are certain features of academic writing in spite of all the varieties and variations across, you know, uh, different pieces of academic writing, you know. So that's so, sort of a point of my emphasis in Chapter 2, like being, rigor, uh, being rigorous, you know, being, you know, a little bit more, um, uh, you know, uh, formal. And that doesn't mean you, uh, you cannot infuse some kind of informality in there. And, you know, being uh, more um, compact and being idea-focused rather than focusing on the writer, him or herself. So these, some of these things are, are common to academic writings that, that enables us to, to judge a piece of writing as academic, uh, it's more or less academic, I guess. That's probably the best way to say it. It's a continuum. Some are very dense, abstract, and technical. Others are probably less so, but they all belong to to this macro genre that we call academic writing. And so I guess we're talking about genres of writing as well as registers of writing. <laughs> so register being, you know, the different ways you use language to communicate in a particular genre, right? You're 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 citing already very many of the terms from systemic functional linguistics, which which I brought in um, in the introduction there, and and it was one of the things that got me. Well, one amongst very many things, but it was certainly for me personally, one of the things that got me most excited about your book, because my experience with uh, SFL, as, as people often refer to it as systemic functional linguistics, has been that since this was a branch that was designed to be applicable, which I find um Right. I mean, Michael Halliday, the way he used language and uh, made up terms was just fantastic. I mean, to make a distinction between applied linguistics and applicable linguistics already for me is <laughs> it's it just speaks so much to the mindset of this particular uh, branch of, of linguistics, because it's always developing in a way to be more precise in its theory, always knowing that its object is slightly slipping out of its grasp, but that is also part of what its object is meant to do. <laughs> I mean, if if on a very global scale, I'm talking about it right now. But to get to get to the point that you just mentioned with macro genres and and registers, this this I find also uh, fascinating because yes, you, indeed, you you make it clear throughout the book the macro genre of of written academic English is about clarity relevance, focus on subject matter amongst a handful of other things. And yet we can imagine below that micro genres. And I think we're talking now genres in the sense of, say, Martin and Rose in their book, Genre Relations, where you're essentially within a conceptualization of reality. You're doing history in order to be able to tell everyone else, this is our background, this is our past. Or you're telling an anecdote to be able to share with somebody, this is how I feel today, and this is something I would probably call good or bad, and so on, right? I, I, I think you see... That's true, and, and, and I'm, I'm glad you brought up Martin's work. And basically what he says, the, the purpose of our communication really, uh, in some way, I guess in a large way, dictates the kinds of language choices that we make. You know, if we want to make comparisons, or describing an object, or making an argument, or offering an explanation of phenomenon. You know, these different kinds of purposes really uh, dictate, uh, in a big way, the kinds of language choices that we make to, uh, in order to realize our purpose. But then, beyond that, uh, the purpose is also connected to the immediate context of communication. And that dictates also the, our choice of, of, of language and grammar. And so there are two layers of, of our contexts that, um, 
that determine the kinds of language choices that we make, uh, the context of culture, which is the general aspect of it, but also the context of it, communication. Uh, that's the register aspect of it. But again, at the same time, our language choices at the same time shapes the context. You know, sometimes, you know, we use language in a creative way, and that creates new context that uh, that that would be uh, that the reader have to be able to uh, to discern in order to to truly understand the author's intentions and meanings. So it, it, it's mutual, and I'm glad you brought up the uh, the SFL systemic functional linguistic. You know, one big difference between SFL and the traditional ways of conceptualizing grammar is the in traditional um, conception grammar are just a set of rules to follow or or or, or to or or, we, or a set of uh, prescriptive uh, rules to avoid. SFL sees grammar as a an interlocking system of choices that enable its users to make meaning in different contexts for different purposes. And I, I think what is most amazing about this particular uh, linguistics theory that Halliday offers is it offers us a powerful meta-language, which is language for talking about language, for analyzing grammatical choices in a text and discussing how these choices make meaning. And, and when we have that awareness, when we have that understanding, it enables us to better understand the text that we read, and it also enables us to better make language choices to realize the kind of meaning that we intend. And I found in my work, uh, in, uh, in my teaching, a lot of students, they have great ideas, but again, the way they package their ideas, it's oftentimes model their message. And, in, uh, to give you a very uh, a, 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 a quick example, like I don't know if this uh, this is too technical, the non-finite clause, you know, uh, oftentimes people, students, especially uh, for whom English is a second language, they will do like two coordinated clause, like he fell down and then he cry, uh, he scream, right? But then when you make that into a non-finite clause. He fell down screaming out loud for help. That screaming out loud for help accompanies the falling down action, right? But then when you package those into two equal clauses, like he fell down and he screamed for help, the focus is diffused. The focus is on both of those, both falling down and crying for help. But when you make crying for help be... Uh, the non-finite clause, your focus is on falling down. The crying help is just something that accompanies the, uh, the, the falling down. And so people oftentimes don't think about, you know, when do I use non-finite clause? When do I use two coordinated clauses? Because that does have implication for focus and, and, and for clarity sometimes. You know, Like I have students doing, oh, I review this manuscript, and, and we and evaluate sentences in there. Well, the reading and evaluating is part of my review process. So reading and evaluating should be used to, to, uh, to elaborate on, on review, on the, on, the, on the main action review. But then oftentimes students will just, I read the manuscript, no, I review the manuscript and read and evaluate each sentence in the paragraph. And again, uh, you can see that you know, when you package that message as a uh, coordinated sequence of clauses, then the meaning and the focus is different from, from when you make the review, uh, the main verb, and then the reading and evaluating uh, the accompanying or elaborating uh, uh, devices for, uh, for review. Uh, and so yeah, these are just that people don't think very much about. But really no, but these are just the things. Over. These are the things, as, as you so rightly say, that that SFL gives us a language to talk about and to to really um, 
let's say, analyzed in a way that, that we understand. I mean, that's at the heart of what SFL does, the function of it. So, and, and this is what your book is also uh, very, very good at doing. For example, when you, you give in the center part of the book, these skills and strategies, and, and you work through templates or sentence skeletons, as they're also called, um, here, what you're very careful to do is to point out, because somebody might just see this as a list of academic words, right? <laughs> which, which, words, right. <laughs> and, 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 and it's far, far more than words. And plus, these lists of academic words are completely decoupled from any sort of cotext, right? We don't understand why we're using them. And, and this is what your book does. It shows us why. So what you enable readers to do, and of course, future writers to do, in my opinion, through this SFL approach is is to guard against imitation because you're always encouraging them to adapt things to their own writing. So your examples are perfect. I mean, I think when you have this um, non-finite clause with the ing, this for very many readers is going to sound somehow more formal because it's a little bit more distant from the way that they might normally use language or have originally learned the language. So this, you know, fall, he fell down screaming out for help. That's screaming out for help. Oh, there's something complex about that. I'll use that. That's imitation, though. What you're allowing people to do is to see in both of those, yeah? He fell down screaming out for help. He fell down and screamed out for help. To see in both of those, okay, well, what is happening? And what do I need to do? Exactly. And the functions and meaning of those choices, that's the focus. You know, rather than just copying, you know, those different, what, what students are oftentimes beautiful sentences without regard for the context in which they may be appropriate and all, and the kinds of meaning that they uh, encode, you know, then then they oftentimes don't make sense. And, uh, you know, uh, for example, a lot of my students would, you know, say, well, in academic writing, people write long sentences. And when they write long sentences, their professor often say, well, this sentence is too long and it it, it just, uh, it's uh, awkward. And one reason is they don't think about, you know, do I need long sentences here? Sometimes they do, but other times they probably don't. And making a sentence long does not necessarily make your writing more academic or better. Uh, and so sort of marrying the, the grammatical choices, choice of form with the kinds of meaning, the kinds of function you, you really need for, for your particular paragraph or sentence, I, I think is the key. Another example is passive and active voice. Oftentimes, you know, students get advice from their advisor, say, well, let's try to use more active voice rather than passive voice. You know, uh, and in my view, it's you know, it's not as simple as that. You know, uh, you know, uh, there's nothing inherently better or worse in passive or, or active voice. Um, you know, sometimes you have to use passive voice to facilitate the flow of information to to foreground ideas and background the agents. Right, and other times you have to use active voice because you want to foreground a certain things in, in, in that particular sentence and paragraph, or to facilitate the flow in the text. And so, when we look at functions and meanings in our language choices, then we start to avoid giving the students these dichotomous choices as if one is better than the other. And, and so students oftentimes have the misconception, or oh, I should use active voice to make my writing more engaging, or I should use passive voice to make my writing more academic. You know, and academic writing, we use both. And whenever you, when you use it, is a matter of, of you know, how it fits into the particular paragraph or particular text that you are constructing. Does it facilitate the flow? Does it help you uh, foreground or highlight things you want to highlight? You know, does it help you put the focus on this particular thing that you want to focus on? So, so, it, so I think it's more complex than just, hey, use this or not use that, or this one is more useful than that. Well, I mean, this is such an old tradition in, in grammar. Um, in, in the English context, it goes back at least to the 18th century of prescribing the word that you'd used before, where essentially you you just need to note a number of rules. I mean, even Strunk and White, <laughs> the classic guide, is really 
despite the fact that it is quite incisive and, and helpful, again, prescriptive. And, and what you're doing and what SFL is doing is so much different. I mean, just this idea of passive and active. I mean, Michael Halliday has has followed the you know, the elaboration of the passive resources in the language and scientific writing up from the late Middle Ages in English and has showed us that um, these, you know, the language is doing something with the context that we live in, our real lives and the things that we want our language to engage with. It's doing it for a reason. We don't have entire control over the way any language, we're talking about English today, English develops, but we need to be careful to notice how it's developing because it's it's telling us something. It's telling us what we're interested in and what sort of purposes we have and what we would be able to like to be able to achieve. And That's I think a very good point. I, I, I agree. You know, like scientists, they don't uh, gather together and try to conspire and conjure up a, a, a very dense and, and uh, abstract academic style. They don't do that. It's just because in the process of communicating their understanding and meaning, they find out that a particular uh, a set of particular devices are particularly helpful. Like they use a passive voice in many cases. You foreground enables you to foreground ideas and findings and concepts and theories rather than foregrounding, you know, uh, the scientists themselves, the actors, right? And then, you know, why do they use a lot of nominalizations? Because they help them package information so that they could pick it up and continue discussion of the concept. Why do they use a lot of what, what I find out long now phrases? Because they help them package a lot of actions into a thing so that they could talk about a thing in a way that would facilitate their a presentation of information and development or arguments. So, so oftentimes scientists and other, and other disciplinary experts, they use the type of language they do not because they they conspire to to uh, erect barriers for for non experts, but because they find those devices uh, very uh, helpful and 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 needed to make their writing more focused, more uh, uh, clear. And, and, and so these are things that people oftentimes don't pay as much attention. Why do they have to use this type of thing? It's not because, oh, they are bad writers. No, they are not bad writers. They use those because they have to. And, and, and I hope, you know, in the pedagogical context, we don't make students feel like, you know, those are bad type of writing. You know, you... Everyday ways of lang- using language will be able to communicate the same sort of meaning. Um, you know, uh, how did it shows us? You cannot do that, and that's why scientists use the type of language that they do, <laughs> not to alienate alienate us on purpose, but to help them communicate what they want to communicate. <laughs> So yeah, this this pedagogical context is, is 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 key. I mean, this is really what your book is here for, anyway. It's meant to improve future writers and even uh, current academic writers um, by by showing them what it is that they're about, what it is that they're doing. Um, you make here the great point about nominalizations. So one example that you give in the book, just so that readers are are, are up to speed as well, um, Mr. Hansen did not attend the board meeting yesterday. That's how we would typically say that idea. But we can also nominalize it. We can say Mr. Hansen's absence from yesterday's board meeting. And I stopped because there's no verb yet. But look at how we have been able to package an entire sentence even before the verb has come. And, th- and this is precisely what you're talking about. And and what, what I would say in the, uh, and I would really be interested to hear your opinion on this, what I would say in the educational context is that we need to probably make it clear clearer than we have, and your book is certainly one step in that direction, to future writers, that you're not just engaging now with new content in, say, biology, yeah, a random example. You're doing that. And of course, it's going to be in the, in the beginning difficult to write about it because you're not the master yet of those concepts or those objects of inquiry. However, you have to also recognize that the language that has evolved, not even been developed, but evolved to be able to talk about those things is also not within your mastery yet. So you're facing this on two different fronts. And this is, I would say, our educator's job to make clear and to, and, and to facilitate. Uh, I agree completely. And that's why Halliday uh, said 
that you know learning the discipline, learning the content is primarily a linguistic process. You, you learn language that construe the content. You learn you learn language that you know help experts or or or, or the or the learners communicate the content, the understanding, and so they go together. Um, and, and and that's why you know language you know, uh, should be a, a key component of our pedagogical emphasis in whatever subject that we, we teach. And, and that's why I wrote another book, I guess, uh, last year, uh, using fun- uh, functional grammar in English literacy, teaching and learning, try to, to communicate the point that, you know, whatever subject you teach, language should be a, a main focus because it helps us learn the content, but it also helps us communicate uh, our understanding of the content. And uh, it also helps us, you know, renovate the content and so critique the content by paying attention to how language is used. So that is uh, something that um, I, I, in, pedagog- in pedagogical content, language is oftentimes what we call the hidden curriculum of schooling. It's like an elephant in the in the room. People recognize there's a language barrier, barrier language challenge, language issues, but uh, very often people don't talk too much about that, especially in subject area context. And even when they talk about that, it's almost invariably focus on the vocabulary as if, you know, disciplines, you know, consist of vocabulary or terminologies only. And it's more than that. It's the technical grammar of each discipline that make, you know, the disciplinary discourse what it is. Uh, How is the discourse of science different from the discourse of history or mathematics? It's the language. And and so so I hope people will pay more attention to language. And learning the language, you're not just learning language per se, you're alone, you are also learning the language. And I demonstrated in, you know, in my other book, uh, that really, when you're engaged in language exploration, you are really exploring the meaning of a text. And in that sense, you are really exploring the content of the text. And so so they really go hand in hand. Um, and, and I hope that's something that people will realize. You know, learning language is not just an isolated grammatical exercise or drill, but it's in the context of learning content. And then when you combine those two together, it makes learning the content and language more integrated, more engaging, and more interesting and more effective in my view. <laughs> Uh, most certainly. I mean, that's what comes out of the book for sure. I wonder if what you've just said kind of gives us the reason for the title of your book, Demystifying Academic Writing, because what you've just said, to me anyway, it, it sort of blows away the fog and we see what's actually happening there when either learners are beginning to write or when experts are doing the writing that the learners read. Is, is that what you had in mind when you came up with the title, Demystifying? Yes, because it, it, it's oftentimes very mysterious to, to a lot of uh, students, and they thought this academic is this convoluted ways of you know saying things that only experts can do. And oftentimes, you know, when they get feedback from advisors, it's all, oh, your writing is not clear, it's not focused, and it's... It, and, and how? How? In what way is it not focused? In what way could I make it more focused? In what way is it not flow? Uh, uh, not flowing. How do I make it flow? You know. So these are the things that I try to unpack. And well, your writing is not focused. Look at how the way you package your ideas. Look at the way you use your sentences. It, 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 it probably should have been a non-finite clause, but then instead you make it a two-coordinate clause. That's why you diffuse your focus, right? Hey, you use your passive voice or use the active voice. Uh, maybe that's why your writing is not flowing. And so these are things that, you know, what I try to do, again, uh, my student taking my class always say, man, now you give me really good tools uh, that I could use or, or you help me pinpoint why my writing is not, uh, it, it's not effective. So now they have ways of talking about uh, writing in ways that help them really understand why their writing is not focused, why their writing is 
problematic. And and all the time, those could be very, very nebulous. They say, well, my right, I kind of feel that it's not focused, it's not flowing, and but I don't know exactly how I could make it focus, how I could make it clearer. And so so that's all I tried to do, to, to really demystifying it and, and also to give them tools and strategies that they could use to help them make their writing uh, more effective in the sense it's more focused, it's more... Um, it's clearer and it's uh, it, it, it flows. It's fluent, you know. Right, right. So, I mean, you demystify and you demystify to cite your subtitle through genres, moves, skills, and strategies. So all very specific things that get analyzed down to the last detail in your book in a very approachable way, um, which which all SFL is. SFL is, is applicable. It's meant to be really acted upon. I mean, it is true that upon first contact, I know I had to get over a large hump because there are a lot of terms and the concepts are so new. But once you get inside, you realize, ah, Okay. Yeah, this makes total sense. <laughs> and I, I wonder if, if, if this approach, this applicable SFL approach, I wonder if this um, sort of neutralizes a number of the sort of sources of difficulties between L1 and L2 users. So if you've got people who are approaching English from the outside or approaching English as the language that they grew up speaking, if you give them this SFL approach, do you notice that essentially you've got them both, these two different groups, learning on a level? Yes, the grammatical terminology is always a, an issue, you know, especially for, in particularly for native speakers of English. Oftentimes, they are, language become intuitive and they are not used to, to meta language, especially, you know, in K-12 education, we don't do a lot of uh, grammar instruction because grammar has been uh, conceived of as a set of rules that, that people find boring. And so, but in order to talk about language, talk about text, you have to have some sort of meta language, right? Some of the terms, the terminology, like when you talk about math, if you don't have, you know, those rectangular square, you know, tangent, all of those terminology. How, how could you talk about mathematics, geometry, for example? The same thing as chemistry. Every discipline, you know, uh, when you try to discuss the topic, the subject, you've got to have some terminology. And so even though I use a lot of the uh, terminology, I try to, again, try to relate those to traditional grammatical terms as much as possible, because I know most people, most readers of my book will probably be more familiar with the traditional a grammar. So I use a lot of terminology uh, from traditional grammar only in cases when they are no equivalent in in <laughs> in in uh, traditional grammar that I resort to functional grammar. Um, but again, the key here, we got to have a set of meta language that enables us to engage in productive conversation or productive engage in it being aware of or noticing the language phenomenon. And so, and that's why, you know, I, in chapter two, I have a table sort of laying out all of those. Uh, readers don't have to memorize those. At least they should be able to say, oh, when I see this, this is what it's called. They may not be able to say it in name, but they probably should know that particular phenom linguistic phenomenon as a distinct type of phenomenon, even though they may not have they may not need the necessary, uh, they may not need the, the right grammatical terminology for it. Uh, they could use their own grammatical terminology as well. Um, but, you know, it's good to be able to name that a particular uh, grammatical phenomenon so that it makes it easier for us to think more deeply about the meaning, about the text, about language use, but also at the same time enable us to engage in conversation with others, especially for teachers. When you are engaging in text analysis, in reading comprehension, in, in writing, you know, in editing, in revision, you got to refer to linguistic phenomenon. How are you going to call them? You know, so that's why it's good to have a set of terminologies. And however uh, teachers call them, they'll probably be okay as long as they could make it accessible to students. And, and what I found is most people have some sense of grammatical uh, terms from traditional grammar. And that's why in my book, I try my best to link it to traditional grammar and using as few functional 
grammar terms as possible, um, uh, even though they are not entirely equivalent in many cases, but the nuances probably are not... Um, are probably not very significant, I guess, in the context of learning how to write here. Uh, from a, if you are not a linguist, I guess it's probably okay. Uh, you don't have the uh, the technical terminology, but at least it, it would be helpful to at least know uh, that uh, those type of uh, grammatical phenomenon is a uh, that you have some name for it, I guess, whatever yeah. you need and, to come up with. <laughs> and I wonder in that learning context of uh, learning to write in your academic discipline, I wonder if you noticed through this approach any, um, what would be the difference then for the person who has spoken English um, from childhood to the person who is perhaps now uh, coming to the UK or the United States and is really dealing with that as a as a second language or a third or a fourth language. Um, because what I notice in SFL is that it gives you a, I mean, it applies to every language. It applies to language, not just languages. And um, I, I wonder if you've had the experience in teaching these uh, approaches that uh, you kind of find a leveling off of the differences between L1 and L2 users of the language. What I found is a lot of these second or foreign language users, they are more, um, they, they seem to know the grammatical terminology a little bit more than a lot of native speakers uh, who oftentimes are brought up with very uh, little explicit instruction in grammar. And so when you talk about noun phrases, non-finite clauses or clauses, a lot of native speakers, they have very little clue about what those are. They may be able to point out what a noun is, but when you ask them to identify noun phrases, noun phrases or even prepositional phrases, it can be challenging for a lot of them. A lot of these non-native speakers, they probably have been, you know, they are more metalinguistically aware in my experience, and they seem to uh, to to be uh, to be able to pick these up a lot faster in terms of grammatical terminology. But their issue is more of writing grammatically. Um, um, fluent uh, sentences, oftentimes that's, that's a challenge for them beyond making grammatical choices. Uh, native speakers, oftentimes they could write you know, sentences or paragraphs that make perfect grammatical sense, but when you try to examine it from a more functional perspective, from a meaning perspective, you know, those grammatically correct sentences may not always be the most appropriate. So the second or foreign language speakers, they face, you know, what I call double challenges. One is how do you construct sentences that are somewhat grammatical? The, uh, and then the next step is, again, how do you make sure, you know, the sentences that you construct convey the type of meaning that you intend? And so for second or foreign language speaker, oftentimes, you know, you know, they have to work both. How do I, first of all, construct a sentence that is at least somewhat grammatical? And then whether my grammatical, my choices enable me to express the type of meaning that I really intend. Um, so so that, that's the main difference that I see. You know, they are more metalinguistic aware, and, but again, they face more challenges than native speakers. Uh, but probably different set of challenges. And, yeah, so yeah. To, uh, in a sense, to each their own sets of challenges, if you like. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's very interesting. I, uh, one of the uh, other issues that the book makes um, very clear is that all of this is motivated, not just motivated in a communicative and research sense, but in a publishing and a career sense. And this is one of the other points of the book that struck me as unique, not only the SFL approach, but to already at this, I mean, this book could easily be used in undergraduate courses, certainly in graduate courses, already to be talking about publication and to make very clear that the academy runs on publication. And this is what you already need to know about, understand, be thinking about. Because again, that's a demystification in my opinion. When when you as a graduate student suddenly find yourself tasked with, you know, publishing an article, <laughs> it shouldn't come out of nowhere, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and and again, it's a it's a process where uh, you pay attention, you notice as you 
are being socialized in, in, in your particular discipline, in your particular discourse community. And oftentimes, uh, the, this is something that I often emphasize to my students. It's your learning content in your discipline as you are being socialized in your discipline. Pay attention to how experts in your discipline use language in ways that is legitimated, in a way that is valued in your discipline. Um, you know, like one thing that I found like, in social sciences and humanity, we do a lot of citation, direct quotes, but in science, article they don't do a, a lot of direct quotations and so so that's something you know that 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 we that i emphasize to you you know be attentive to disciplinary differences uh while also understand what is common across disciplines um you know in science for example we do a lot of multimodal constructions you know in in humanities you know that probably is not as prevalent uh, or or the visual aspect probably probably is not as dominant we rely rely a lot more on language on words uh, to to communicate our meaning uh, in science it's oftentimes multimodal and so understanding the different skill sets that uh, that are required that are needed to communicate and to learn in in your discipline, you know, is I think is is really important, and and that is noticing. I always emphasize noticing. Just pay attention when you read other people's stuff. Don't just pay attention to content. Also, pay attention to how the, the content is being constructed, and try to emulate. Try to use those. If you see a word, see a syntactic pattern that is somewhat, you know, that you know, I've you know I've never used this before, but it expressed meaning in a way that I really like, you know, it makes it very uh, clear and fluent and maybe I should try to use it. The first couple of times you may not use it exactly the way that it should be used, but hopefully over time you can perfect it and, and it becomes your own. And so that's a process and I oftentimes told my students, you cannot improve your academic writing by just taking one course or go, going to one workshop or, or one week. It's a long-term process and that's why this noticing is very important. Well, thank you very much uh, for that, uh, Ji Hui. That is uh, Ji Hui Fang. His book, Demystifying Academic Writing, Genres, Moves, Skills, and Strategies, was published by Routledge in 2021. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Ji Hui. Goodbye. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate the invitation, and thank you very much. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye, and until next time here on Scholarly Communication.